So as Steve mentioned last night, I had kind of a longish spell in my life, uh, being kind of a part-time Dharma bum, traveling around uh, the United States, Asia, sitting various retreats. And then more recently, I entered into motherhood, and that's kind of consuming my life now. But back uh, in the day before all of that, I actually had a brief uh, first career as a telecommunications engineer. So I've kind of been all over the map. And specifically, at one point, I was working on the design of cellular telephone systems. And this was at the point when the cellular companies were all making the transition from the original analog technology to the new digital technology. So I'm kind of dating myself there. <laughs> and I was working for a company that was in the midst of that process. And the particular digital technology that they were considering switching to was a new one. It was one that hadn't been implemented by any of the major companies yet. So it really wasn't fully tested, even though it seemed very promising. And I ended up spending a couple of years involved in this kind of long, involved process of thoroughly testing out this new technology. <laughs> testing it in many different ways in an, in an attempt to come to some degree of certainty of conviction that it would actually deliver what it promised. So we started out with the proposal from the developer of the new technology, with their explanation of it and how it would work, which was this big, thick document. And we went through that in detail, and we studied it, and we analyzed it. And when we were satisfied that the theory was sound, then we set about testing it in the lab. And we had two large labs, uh, each one of them probably several times the size of this room. And we filled them with all sorts of test equipment that we needed. We built a, a lead room to isolate the equipment from all the radiant, you know, the ambient radiation and all sorts of specialized things. All sorts, we ordered all sorts of specialized equipment just to test this particular technology. And we designed all of the test procedures and protocols that we needed to examine all of the different aspects of the technology that we could think of, really. And we gathered lots and lots of data, and we analyzed it, and we interpreted it. And when we were satisfied that this technology could perform the way that we wanted in this very kind of isol isolated, specialized setting just in the lab, then we set out to field test it. So we installed kind of a miniature version of the system out in the real world that would operate over a relatively small contained geographic area. And we hired, um, at one point, a couple of hundred temps, temp workers. And we rented maybe about 100 cars. And we had them go out in shifts all day, all night, making phone calls to see what the system would actually do in real life. So that was this huge undertaking, huge logistics. And we did that for a few weeks. And again, we gathered lots and lots of data and we analyzed it, and we interpreted it. And when we were satisfied that the technology would really perform the way that we wanted in a real-life situation, in a real environment, then only then did the company commit to actually using this new technology and putting it into a place and making that transition. So this was a really big project. You know, It involved lots of people, lots of time, lots of resources, lots of money. It was really expensive to do all of this very comprehensive testing. And the company that I was working for was only willing to make that investment in all of that testing for two reasons. 
One was that the, the theory behind this new technology was convincing. It was promising. It inspired confidence that the technology would actually work in the real world when put into operation. And the second was that the potential benefits of this new technology were huge. If it actually delivered what it promised, then the benefits and the profits from it would actually far outweigh all of the, that initial investment in the testing and verification. So because of these two things, the company was willing to make the investment and test the theory to see if it could be verified. And as it turned out, it was during the time that I was involved with this project at work that I first encountered Vipassana, the style of practice that we do here. And I have no doubt that at least part of the reason why I was drawn to it is that in many ways it's very much that same kind of undertaking. <laughs> that work that I was doing in my engineering career was actually very analogous to the work that we do here. The Buddha really laid it all out on the line for us. You know, he laid out this whole theory of how to free ourselves from suffering. And he used to say that he taught with an open hand you know, meaning that there was nothing that he kept in his fist, you know, hidden behind his back, just for himself or a few select disciples. He really laid it out all out for us. And if we look even just a little bit into the Buddhist canon, the set of discourses and other teachings that have come down to us over the centuries, then it's really easy to see this. I walked into Steve's uh, cabin where he's staying a little bit earlier today. And I was struck by this big stack, about this tall, of three books, <laughs> about, uh, which, were th which are three of the major collections of discourses that are available to us in English translation and that we use a lot as, as references. And I expressed my, my hope that he had not brought those with him from Hawaii in his suitcase, which he assured me he hadn't, that they're a reference set that uh, the center keeps here for the teachers to use. But those are just three out of dozens of books um, that make up the Theravada canon. The complete set of teachings with all of the commentaries, the sub-commentaries, they fill a bookshelf. So they have all sorts of information in them. They cover every conceivable topic related to human existence, from the most mundane to the most super-mundane. So the Buddha and his disciples, they really spelled it all out for us. There's nothing more that we need to discover. There's nothing in addition to that that we need to deduce for ourselves. All that we need to do is to test, to verify, to validate, until we're really completely satisfied, completely convinced that what the Buddha said is true. So we come here to the lab. This is our lab here. And we use our specialized test equipment, which is this fathom-long body with all of its senses and its mind. And we look and we see how the theory plays out in practice. One of the traditional virtues that's attributed to the Dhamma, to the body of the teachings, is that it invites investigation. And this is considered one of the beauties, one of the virtues of the Dhamma. And the Buddha always used to say, ehi pasiko, which translates as come and see or see for yourselves. So he would give a discourse, he'd give a teaching, he'd lay it all out, and then he would say, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself if what I say is true or not. 
But just as with that engineering project that I was working on, this is a really big endeavor to really see for ourselves, to really check it out. It involves a huge investment of our resources, our time, our energy, our money. And in order to be willing to undertake it, we also need to be convinced of those same two things. That the theory is convincing, that it's promising, that it inspires confidence that it will actually work the way that we want when we put it into practice. And also that the potential benefits are huge. That if the practice actually delivers what it promises, then the benefits will far outweigh that initial investment that we make. This kind of understanding is part of what the Buddha called samaditi, which is usually translated as right view, but could also be translated as skillful understanding, which maybe points a little bit more uh, towards the actual meaning. It could also just be thought of, in colloquial terms, kind of as helpful ideas. And samaditi covers those basic theories of the Buddha that we're working to confirm or deny through our practice. And the sama part of it, that particular uh, prefix of sama, is particularly interesting. It's sometimes translated into English as right or wise or skillful. But it's really one of those terms from Pali, the the original language of the teachings, that can't be exactly translated. But the basic gist of the word is that something that sama helps us to move along the path towards freedom. So it helps us to move towards something, towards less suffering in our lives. The factor of samaditi, the skillful understanding, is traditionally listed as the first step in the Noble Eightfold Path, the path of practice that was laid out by the Buddha, because it's the natural starting point. It's kind of the minimum baseline understanding that we need in order to comprehend what the Buddha was proposing that we do through this practice and to start to think about how to go about it. And the point of skillful understanding is that it motivates us and enables us to practice. It gives us the conviction that it's worth making the necessary investment of effort in the practice. And this is very important to remember that it's not about acquiring understanding for its own sake. It's not about acquiring some kind of intellectual gratification or accomplishment, but really to help us to step onto and move along the Eightfold Path. So the essence of the teachings that are included in Samaditi can be summed up as simply that there is a path to the end of suffering and that we can follow it. Bhante Gunaratna, who's a very venerable Sri Lankan monk in this tradition, uh, has this to say about Samaditi in one of his books. He says that in anything we do, the first step is to know why we're doing it. That's why the Buddha made skillful understanding the first step on his path to happiness. He wanted us to understand that the Buddhist path is not some abstract notion of promising to be good so that we can get some reward or some mysterious code of behavior that we have to follow to belong to a secret club. Rather, the Buddha's path is grounded in common sense and careful observation of reality, 
He knew that if we open our eyes and look carefully at our lives, we will understand that the choices that we make lead either to happiness or unhappiness. Once we understand this principle thoroughly, we will make good choices because we do want to be happy. So what is the skillful understanding that will help us along our spiritual path? And traditionally, it includes two of the Buddha's really core teachings, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths and the teaching on karma, or kama, as it's pronounced in the Pali. And these two teachings can be expounded and analyzed in very complex and sophisticated ways. You know, there are people that do whole doctoral dissertations on these topics. So they can be presented in ways that seem very abstract and very intellectual. And the teachings on karma, in particular, can get very heady very quickly. And depending on the particular bent of our minds, we may feel either intrigued or overwhelmed by that kind of a discussion. But that kind of very philosophical analysis is not actually what's really included within samadhiti. That's not really the gist of it. Instead, Samadhiti points to an understanding of these teachings at a level that will motivate and empower us to do this practice, to actually walk this path towards freedom from suffering. So it's very practical. You know, we don't need to worry about getting a complete grasp of the theory of karma or of all the subtleties of the Four Noble Truths before we get on with the business of just actually practicing. We just need to have enough of a basic understanding to allow us to set out. And I think that most, if not all of you here, are probably familiar with the basic teachings on the Four Noble Truths. So I'm not going to discuss them in great detail tonight. But from the point of view of skillful understanding, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, again, is really meant to motivate us in practice. And it does that by communicating the possibility of freedom from suffering. In pop culture, a lot of attention around Buddhism is given to the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha, or suffering. So we hear this kind of stock phrase with regard to Buddhism, you know, that it teaches that life is suffering. (laughs) So if that's the only contact that someone's had with these teachings, it can seem quite pessimistic, can seem quite depressing or discouraging. But in fact, the Four Noble Truths are overwhelmingly optimistic. They start off by saying in the First Noble Truth that yes, there is suffering in life. Things don't just always go our way. You know, we get experiences that we don't want. We don't get experiences that we do want. We lose experiences that we want to keep. And we keep experiences that we want to lose. And all of this goes on for the most part beyond our control. There's not a whole lot that we can do about it. And this is suffering. But then the second noble truth goes on to say that there's a cause for that suffering that can be identified and understood. That we don't just suffer for no reason or at random. There's a method to the madness. That in fact we suffer because we struggle with the way that things are. We want them to be otherwise. We want that constant stream of pleasant experience. 
we want to be in control, calling all of the shots and choreographing, choreographing our experiences. But the universe isn't designed to deliver that. It doesn't offer that. And so we suffer. And then the third noble truth goes on to tell us that there is the possibility of finding an end to suffering if we learn to understand it, to identify its source and abandon it, that there's an alternative. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to struggle with the way that things are. We can learn to let go. We can actively cultivate those qualities of heart and mind that help us to let go and to be at peace with the universe just as it is. And then the fourth noble truth tells us exactly how to do that how to bring our understanding into alignment with the truth through samaditi, how to set ourselves in the right direction and nurture wholesome aspirations, how to conduct ourselves and interact with others in a way that supports harmony, and how to pay attention and train our minds so that we can see the truth of things and arrive at a place of acceptance and deep peace. And really, this is about as much as we need to know about the Four Noble Truths for the purposes of Samaditi. That there is suffering, that it has a cause, that it can come to an end, and that there's a well-worn path leading to that end. And that well-worn path begins precisely with this understanding that there's something we can do about our difficulty in life. There's a way, there's a path. We're not just lost groping alone in the darkness, thanks to the Buddha and the generations of practitioners that have passed down these teachings. So this is a tremendously optimistic and inspiring teaching. And when we relate to it through skillful understanding, then we can draw our motivation and our inspiration, our sense of urgency to practice from that understanding itself. The teaching on karma, or kama, is one that's infamous for becoming very intellectually tantalizing or frustrating for some yogis. So we need to be careful about getting too worked up about it one way or another. But really, just as in the case of the Four Noble Truths, the understanding of kama that serves as skillful or wise within the context of the path is really very basic. It's not actually such a big deal. It's said that even those who have no knowledge of Buddhism or don't practice this path can have this understanding because in a way it is very intuitive. And what it comes down to really is just simply recognizing that as human beings, we're creatures of habit. The Buddha said that whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. This is a famous quote from the Middle Length Discourses. And it kind of sums up the whole idea of kama. That whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. So the Buddha here is pointing out this fundamental fact of human nature that's really quite obvious if we think about it, which is that we're creatures of habit that human beings, like maybe or maybe even all 
live other living beings on this planet are to a very great degree ruled by habit. You know, we develop physical habits, habitual ways of behaving or acting in certain circumstances. We develop verbal habits, habitual ways of using language and communication and dealing with others. And what the Buddha said was most significant, we develop mental habits, habitual mental reactions to our internal and external experiences. And as we've all seen in our own lives in very mundane ways, habits are developed through repetition. And this is pretty obvious with lots of simple things in our lives. Things like how we answer the phone, or how we uh, meet or take leave of people. I always go through this uncomfortable period of withdrawal when I travel abroad to a place that doesn't uh, nod and shake their heads to say yes or no. <laughs> I spent some time in Spain, and people there just don't move their heads a whole lot when they speak. That's just the, the kind of the cultural body language. So if you're sitting there nodding and bobbing your head over, all over the place, they just look at you like you're an idiot. You know? <laughs> or in India. You know, the head movements are used in a very different way, so you can really get into a misunderstanding with someone if you're you know, bobbing your head all over the place and they think it means one thing and you think it means another. And yet, it's so difficult to keep from making those habitual movements. They're so ingrained. There's been so much repetition. And driving is another good example of this for a lot of us. You know, I remember how much work it was when I first started driving. You know, I had to think about every little thing, even just starting the car, you know, I'd have to go through the whole checklist, you know, adjust the seat, check the mirrors, you know, press the foot brake, release the emergency brake, just kind of going through the whole thing step by step in my mind, it would, you know, seem so cumbersome. And now, you know, of course, decades later, it's almost all habit, you know, I'd be hard pressed to consciously account for what I'm doing when I'm driving most of the time. And our minds work in exactly the same way. So if we consciously engage in enough thoughts of self-judgment, then after a while, self-judgment will become a habitual tendency of the mind. If we consciously engage in enough thoughts of annoyance, then after a while, annoyance will become a habitual tendency of the mind. If we consciously engage in enough thoughts of kindness, then after a while, kindness would become the habitual tendency of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. The sum total of all of the mental habits that we've accumulated throughout our lifetime is what the Buddha referred to as kama. And we've accumulated a lot of mental habits just in the course of this one life, let alone if there have been others before. And it's that kama, that particular collection of habits, that gives each of us the appearance of a distinctive personality or character. It's what causes each of us to act and speak and think in distinctive ways, in relatively consistent, familiar ways that identify us as an individual, both to ourselves and to others. The Buddha said that we are the heirs of our karma. The classical phrase for that is kamasaka, which is actually the traditional phrase that's used in the reflection on equanimity. We're the heirs of our karma, kamasaka. Which means that all we take with us from moment to moment is the force of our habits. 
we inherit the force of our kama from moment to moment. It's that force that makes it appear that we're a continuous being from moment to moment. Because it's what causes there to be a certain continuity, a certain predictability in our physical and mental experience. So in a very profound way, we are our kama, our karma, to the extent that we're anything. It's because of karma that different people can experience the same thing in radically different ways. Even something just as simple as the sound of the bell. You know, we all basically hear the same physical sound, have the same physical experience in our ears to the extent that they operate properly. But some of us may experience that sound as pleasant, some as unpleasant, some with alarm or surprise or annoyance at different times. So our particular experience of just that simple sound right in this moment depends on all of the habits of our mind that come into play when we hear it. And it's that way with every single stimulus that we encounter from moment to moment to moment. So this is the dharma of the human mind, the truth of how the human mind operates. And it's important to understand that this is not an inherently good or bad thing. It's just the way that we're wired. If you think about it, we have to have habits. You know, there's no really getting by without them. As biological organisms, we have to be able to respond quickly and automatically in many situations in order to function. You know, if we had to make a conscious decision about each and every thought, word, and movement that we made, we would starve to death before we could fix ourselves a meal, or we'd be flat on the road before we ever managed to get out of the way of oncoming traffic. So life on Earth just wouldn't have made it this far without this faculty for developing habits. So it's not an inherently bad thing at all. It just is what it is. It's the way that we're wired. So the Four Noble Truths, the first element of skillful understanding, explain that there is suffering, that it has a cause, that it has an end, and that there's a path that leads to the end. The teaching on Kama then builds on this initial understanding by saying that not only is there a path to the end of suffering, but that we can walk it because of this very fact that we are creatures of habit. So again, this is not a pessimistic pessimistic teaching at all, but a very optimistic and empowering one. It says that our minds are malleable, which is the very thing that brain scientists are starting to discover now through modern scientific methods 2,500 years after the Buddha first made this observation. It's come full full circle. The term that I've heard for this is neuroplasticity, kind of conjures up images of Gumby, (laughs) for me anyway. (laughs) And our minds are kind of Gumby-like in that way. It just means that our habits, the way that our minds respond to experience, are constantly evolving based on how we use them, based on the decisions that we make. So the teaching on Kama 
the, on the most fundamental level, says simply that we can change and that we have some power to influence that change. That the choices that we make and what we do matters. It matters a lot. It has an effect. So we can take effective action to move along the path toward freedom and away from suffering. The Buddha said, cultivate what is wholesome. It is possible to cultivate what is wholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. So cultivate what is wholesome. I heard this teaching early on in my practice, and it's really stayed with me. Just the, the simple directness and down-to-earthness of it really strikes me. You know, the Buddha was so practical. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. This is really the upside of the universal characteristic of impermanence, that everything is constantly in flux, constantly morphing, constantly changing. And the downside of impermanence is that because everything is impermanent, there's nothing that we can hold on to, however much we might want to. But the upside is that because everything is impermanent, there's nothing that we're stuck with. Whatever mental habits that we have that just drive us nuts, we're not eternally stuck with those, not necessarily. They're simply our habits. They're our karma at this particular point in time. But our habits are constantly evolving. And obviously, it's not reasonable to expect them to suddenly change dramatically. But the fact of the matter is that they do change, little by little, over time. And we can influence how they change. Just moment by moment, practicing as we're doing here, our habits, our, our karma, is evolving in a more wholesome direction. It actually couldn't be otherwise. There's no, the, no way that we could come here and do this and not have it have an effect on our conditioning. I sometimes think of the mind as kind of a, a large luxury liner, like the Queen Elizabeth or uh, the love boat. <laughs> I was a big love boat fan in the 70s. You know, a ship like that has this huge mass, this huge momentum propelling it just kind of on in the direction that it's already heading. It doesn't just turn on a dime, but it does turn. You know, it can be steered gradually, little by little, working within the parameters of what's possible for that particular vehicle. So we all have our parameters of what's possible for our particular vehicle of what can change, and how quickly, and how. So it's just this kind of very basic understanding of the Four Noble Truths and karma that together make up what the Buddha called samaditi, skillful understanding, which is our starting point for stepping onto this Eightfold Path. The Buddha said that complete understanding of the Four Noble Truths is the same as full enlightenment, that they're equivalent. Or in other words, it's not until we're fully enlightened that we, complete, we can completely understand what the Buddha was pointing to with this teaching. And he also said that only a Buddha can fully understand the workings of Kama. It's so complex, it's so subtle. 
but not even just a run-of-the-mill run arahant, just an ordinary, fully enlightened being can understand the workings of karma. It's too much for them. So I feel fairly confident in asserting that none of us here in this room <laughs> have really a complete understanding of these teachings on the Four Noble Truths or on karma. And that includes those of us sitting up here talking about it. It's really a work in progress for all of us. It's the big test that we're performing as part of our practice to be gradually moving towards a fuller understanding, a more complete validation and verification of these teachings over time. So it's really not appropriate or helpful to feel any sense of failure or inadequacy if these teachings aren't crystal clear to us at this point. It would be unreasonable to expect them to be. Rather, it's our practice that will gradually clarify them for us in different ways as we move along the path. When we relate to them with skillful understanding, then we can feel a sense of joy whenever our understanding grows just a little bit and a sense of joy from being on a path that will lead to a deepening understanding over time. On the other hand, it's also not appropriate or helpful to just take these teachings for granted, to just accept them blindly. Because if we just accept them as a given, then we won't feel motivated to actually investigate them, to test them, which is the whole point of skillful understanding and the whole of the Eightfold Path. But in general, here in the West, we tend to fall into the opposite extreme because these teachings may contradict some of our very deeply held personal or societal beliefs, our cultural views. We may become too skeptical about them and be prone to a kind of paralyzing doubt. So we may feel like we need to have the Four Noble Truths or Kama completely explained, completely justified, completely rationalized in our own minds before we can really commit to the practice. But as I said before, there's no way that we can arrive at a complete understanding of these teachings before we practice. It's only through the practice, through doing our own extensive testing of the theory, that we can come to genuinely understand them. So the most helpful relationship that we can have towards these teachings included in skillful understanding is what we might call kind of an open-minded skepticism. If we're not skeptical at all, we won't feel any motivation to practice and investigate these teachings for ourselves firsthand. On the other hand, if we're too skeptical, we may never get around to actually practicing and investigating these teachings firsthand because we're too busy trying to understand them intellectually. So neither of these extremes is productive. What is productive, like everything else in this practice, is to take the middle path, to be skeptical enough to want to investigate the teachings directly, but not so skeptical that it becomes a hindrance to our practice. To be willing to do the practice, gather our data, do our research, and see what results it shows. Does our direct personal experience confirm what the Buddha taught or not? And this is a question that we each have to answer for ourselves based on our own personal observation. There's really no one else that can give us that answer. 
in the suttas there's a story that emphasizes the importance of this kind of wholesome, skillful skepticism. At one point, the Buddha visited a place in northern India that was inhabited by a group of people called the Kalama. And I was very amused to see on my drive up from Portland that there's a place name (laughs) that's spelled the same, although my husband pointed out it's probably not pronounced the same, I don't know. But when the Buddha arrived in the capital of the Kalama, the people were very inspired by the nobility and the serenity of his appearance but they were also skeptical. And some of them approached him and they said to him quite frankly, they said, sir, we have had many spiritual teachers visit our town and each one has been able to propound his teaching in an excellent, very believable way. Equally though, every one of these teachers denied and negated every other teacher. Now we're totally confused. We do not know who to believe. And this sounds not unlike the spiritual culture in our own society today. You know, if you walk into the religion section of any major bookstore, you find all of these different competing views, all expounding their teaching in a very excellent way and negating every other teacher. But the Buddha's response was interesting. It wasn't just simply, well, of course, you should believe me. He said, you should only believe what you find to be true through your own investigation of your experience. You shouldn't be satisfied simply with taking someone else's word for it. And this is what he said uh, in the sutta. Never believe any spiritual teaching because it is repeatedly recited or because it's written down in scriptures or because it's been handed down from teacher to disciple over many years, nor because everybody around you believes it, nor because it has metaphysical qualities, nor because it agrees with what you believe anyway, nor because you can rationalize it. Don't believe it because it is a point of view that you need to defend, and don't believe it because the teacher is a reputable person or because the teacher says so. So a healthy, wholesome attitude of skepticism in our practice is one that's simply not willing to take anyone else's word for it, that this is how it is, that this path leads to peace, leads to freedom from suffering. A wholesome skepticism will motivate and energize us to look and see for ourselves how things really are, what really does lead to peace. And it's only through that kind of direct personal investigation that we can ever arrive at a meaningful conclusion. We usually call what we're doing here practice. And that word reflects some very important aspects of this path. You know, we're practicing responding to our experience in a more skillful way. We're practicing the mental skills that will allow us to live a richer and more satisfying life. But we could just as easily call what we're doing here research, gathering that data that will eventually allow us to either confirm or deny what the Buddha taught. And as we go through our days here, we're gathering (coughs) that data in small bits and pieces over and over again. So just to take a couple of very mundane examples, 
we gather a lot of data from our very venerable teacher, physical pain. So we're sitting and we're minding our own business and some discomfort arises in the body. And this may be something that you've encountered uh, once or twice today. And maybe at first we're okay with this. You know, we just recognize it as pain or burning or stinging or whatever it is. We feel the sensations that are going on there. But then after a while, it doesn't go away. Or maybe it even gets worse. And we begin to notice that we're no longer quite so okay with this. That really we want it to go away. That it frightens us or angers us. It brings up, brings up despair or anguish. Or we just feel like we can't stand it any longer. Then maybe we're able to notice those reactions. We notice the fear or the anger, the despair. We make room for them and allow them in. And maybe the mind relaxes a bit then. It kind of accepts the situation. And suddenly it's okay again. Maybe just for a moment or two. But for that short time, we can let go of the struggle and just connect with the experience again. And this can all unfold over the course of just a few minutes, even a few moments. But in that time, we've seen the Four Noble Truths in action. We've seen dukkha arise, suffering. We've seen how our struggle with it makes it unbearable. We've seen how letting go of that struggle makes it bearable again. And we've walked that short path of opening and acceptance that made that transition possible. So just in this very simple, mundane experience, we've gathered one data point in our research into the Four Noble Truths. And we do this over and over again as we practice, whether we realize it or not. It's not something that we have to consciously think about or make happen. It's just what happens when we pay attention in this careful, continuous way that we're cultivating here. And taking again the example of our venerable teacher of physical pain. We may be sitting, just minding our own business, and again, some discomfort arises in the body. And maybe there's some immediate reaction of aversion. You know, oh no, not this again. Or oh no, this is going to ruin my sitting again. Or whatever it might be. But we try our best to be mindful, to keep our attention on the physical sensations, and also to include that aversion and those thoughts that arise. And maybe it passes, or maybe we eventually adjust our posture, but we just try our best throughout the experience to stay connected and aware. And maybe the same basic scenario plays out each time that we experience some ache or pain. But then there comes a time when physical discomfort arises and we don't immediately think, oh no, or whatever that habitual reaction is. Maybe we don't think anything. We just notice it without any immediate reaction. Or maybe we notice it with a quality of interest and curiosity. Or maybe we notice it with a quality of caring and softness. And maybe just a few moments later, that usual response of, oh no, does arise. But something's changed in the equation. Something has shifted in our habitual relationship to this kind of unpleasant experience. 
So again, just in this very simple, mundane experience that may last just a few moments, we've gathered one data point about the operation of karma. We've seen how our habitual response to experience can shift, even just a little bit, as a result of our wholesome effort and attention here. And we've seen this in practice, in a small but concrete way, and for ourselves in our direct experience. And we do this over and over again as we move through our time here. So it's through this gradual process of accumulating many small bits and pieces of data about the Buddha's theories that the wheel of the Dharma turns. There's this uh, lovely image up here that shows uh, the, the mudra of the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, the offering of that teaching. And each time we observe directly for ourselves the operation of the Four Noble Truths and karma as they actually play out in our own experience, then this wheel rotates. Our skillful understanding becomes just that little bit more empirical, just that little bit more verified, something that we've actually confirmed to some extent through our own experience, our own observation. And it becomes just a little bit less theoretical, something that's only conjecture, speculation, ideas. And this is how we become convinced of the promise of the Buddhist path and inspired with confidence that it will actually work for us if we put it into practice. And this is how we come to see that the magnitude of the potential benefits are huge, that if, we pract- that if the practice actually delivers what it promises, that the benefits will far outweigh our investment. Let's sit for a minute. 